if we're not looking ahead and trying to see what things are going to look like in the future, then we're going to be left behind. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Dr. Lauren Nicola. Dr. Nicola is a private practice radiologist who earned a national reputation for her work in health policy and reimbursement. She has subspecialized in both pediatric radiology and breast imaging and serves as the chief executive officer at Triad Radiology Associates in North Carolina. Dr. Nicola also serves as the chair of the ACR MACRA and reimbursement committees and also sits on the board of chancellors as the chair of the ultrasound commission. She represents radiology on behalf of the ACR as relative value scale update committee, RUC advisor to the American Medical Association. Dr. Nicola, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here. So tell me about your background. How did you get into medicine? What, what led you to radiology? That's a good question with, without a really good fancy answer. Um, I grew up in a really small town in North Carolina, um, considered various different career paths, but um, I have an identical twin sister. And so both of us would kind of bounce ideas off of each other and we tend to follow each other's paths. So when we were in kindergarten, we had to make a poster of what we wanted to be when we grew up and we both put hairdresser on there and the teachers were like, you know, maybe you want to consider something else a little bit. Um, you know, we're both really good at science and math, maybe, maybe change your mind a little bit. So I was like, okay, maybe not hairdresser, maybe I'll be a doctor. And then my sister said, I'd like to be a doctor too. So um, pretty much from that point on, we were at least interested in it and kind of waxed and waned through uh, high school and college. But um, it was something that we we're always interested in. No doctors in the family or anything like that. But uh, I was always drawn to the problem solving aspect of medicine and particularly radiology. Um, I just I find it fascinating that we're you know, presented with these images, we kind of get to see into the patient in a very literal way. And we have the answers to many of the clinicians questions that uh, send those patients our way. So to me, that's a really satisfying part of the job and problem solving in general has been always part of my career goals. And so radiology seemed to match that really well. Did your twin sister also stay in medicine? That's an interesting story too. She did stay in medicine. And in fact, she started radiology residency. She did it for about six months and decided that she didn't like it and wanted to go back into internal medicine. So I wanted a genetic test at that point because I couldn't imagine doing internal medicine. So I'm not really sure that the DNA is as, as close as we thought it was. So she she uh, transitioned into internal medicine um, residency and now she's in attending. She actually just took a job at the University of Michigan um, as chief of hospital medicine up there. Awesome. Well, I talked to lots of radiologists and I don't believe I've ever talked to a dual trained pediatric breast imaging radiologist. You must be one of the few. <laughs> How did that come about? Um, I, w I liked both of them um, in residency. I was kind of one of those people who enjoyed lots of different things that I did and had ended up having to narrow it down. Um, I really liked breast imaging, but I liked the, the a lot of aspects of PEDS too. And I was fortunate to be at a training program at Wake Forest where I was able to do both. Um, I actually stayed on as faculty when I finished training for two years at Wake doing both breast and PEDS. One of the uh, surgeons joked that I was the lifeboat fellowship, the women and kids. So whoever whoever gets to go in the lifeboat would come, <laughs> come to see me. But it's it's been really really fulfilling. I get to you know, have some patient contact in both of those um, subspecialties. Interestingly, we, we hired a radiologist a year and a half ago that has the exact same background that did both of the, those uh, fellowships too. So I guess I started a trend and we're now it's becoming common. <laughs> Love that. So what was your first job post-fellowship and were you able to find a job that balanced those two interests? Yes. Yeah, so um, when I finished fellowship in 2012, um, the market was pretty terrible. 
a lot going on. In what? The, the radiology market can be bad? <laughs> that That's going to be news to this audience. Well, it's, it's very uh, ironic now because now, you know, we're desperate for you know, as, as many people as we can get. So it's come full swing uh, to the current day. But back then, you know, the jobs were few and far between. So I finished training and I was um, interested in both you know, peds and breast and some general radiology uh, and a faculty position was open and uh, Wake Forest needed um, someone in both those departments and they were willing to let me spend time in both. So um, I stayed there for two years and did uh, some breast and some peds. There were a lot of things I liked about academics, but I really liked the uh, business growing aspect of private practice as well. So um, at that point, an opportunity opened at Triad uh, around 2015. Um, and so I switched from um, academics over to private practice and, and took that job where I was still able to do breast and peds and some general work. When you joined Triad, how big was the practice? It was, I want to say about probably 35 to 40 radiologists. Um, we have about 52 now, so we've grown quite a bit in the last few years. Excellent. And so um, w- when you joined the practice, did you have your eyes set on becoming CEO? <laughs> Is it part of your five-year plan? Or what? How did that yeah, come No, I was really just grateful for a job. Remember this, uh, the story about the market? <laughs> I would have cleaned toilets if that was <laughs> what they had. <laughs> just put me on the payroll. Um, no, I actually started as an employee. I wasn't even on the partnership track in the in the very beginning. Um, I knew I, I really liked this practice. I l- liked the culture of it. I liked the quality of care that they provided. And so I took the job hoping that things would open up along the way. I remember interviewing with the then CEO and I said, yeah, look, I don't really want to be an employee forever. I'd like to be a partner. And he said, my only advice to you is to make yourself indispensable. And if you do that, then you'll be fine. And so uh, I kind of kept that in mind, um, worked really hard. There were certain you know, areas of the practice where I, I thought I could provide some leadership. And to their credit, they you know, let somebody from the very beginning be involved in executive committee and in leadership roles. And we've really tried to keep doing that, finding people that are engaged, and especially you know, younger people. In general, my philosophy is that the younger people are the ones that are going to be there the longest. And so they have the most vested interest in the practice. So having a you know executive committee of a bunch of 60 year olds is probably not the best idea for the future of the practice. So ours has done a great job of that. So we let young people have leadership roles. I was allowed to do that early on being involved in, in as, as a committee leader and on the executive committee. And then over time, um, our CEO uh, stepped down and then there was. So amazing. So did you eventually get on the partnership track? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I did. Within, the... um, it was yeah, a, a year, year and a half of so working. They said, you know, you've done a great job to put you on the partnership track and then um the rest is history so within a group of of 50 radiologists what what percent would be partners and what does it mean to to be a partner so in our group it's different for every group in our group we have um right around 50 radiologists 30 of those are partners the partners are the practice owners there's logistic differences as far as schedules. The partners are the ones that take call and work after hours and uh weekends and have you know, responsibilities for the practice that way there's a difference in vacation structure and things like that. But I think at the core of it, the partners are the ones who have the ownership of the practice. And so when things go wrong, they're the ones that step up to the plate and fix it. Not that employees don't do that. We certainly have some amazing employees, but, you know, COVID hits, the partners are the one that don't get paychecks for until you realize that things have settled down. We still pay the employees. Things happen. The lists are super long. We tell all the partners that they have to stay till 5.30 instead of five. So just things that go into this is a business that I've built and I'm willing to make sacrifices to keep it sustainable. So as a now practice CEO, 
Well, first of all, are you still practicing clinically? What's the balance? I do. I, I do. It's, it's not a set percentage. Um, most of my time is administrative, but if we're short one day, I'll, I'll hop on the list or just if I'm in my office, I have a PAX workstation in my office. So if, you know, between meetings, I can pop on and help out if a list is long or, you know, I'll hop out after hours and take some shifts. I, I think it's important for leaders to know what it's like to actually do the job and be in the trenches. And so I, I try to do that as much as possible. That being said, my practice, I'm extremely lucky. My practice values the CEO's time to do not just the required meetings, but some whiteboard time for you know, thinking of how to lead the practice and long-term and short-term um, strategy for the for practice. And you can't really get that if you have yeah, a day off a week or you can you know just disappear when it's there's a hospital meeting or things like that. So the practice has been great about respecting that even in a manpower crisis, which has been really nice. So what are the top three things a CEO is at triad is spending her time on? <laughs> like my mental time or my physical time? <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my mental time, mental time. Yeah. Uh, um, hospital relationship is, is one of the big ones. I mean, obviously we're um, emboldened to our hospital contracts. Um, we've try to diversify our business some, but we still have one big health system that's our main customer. So um, a lot of my time and effort goes into making sure that we're good partners to them, that we're valuable to them. Certainly radiology is over the past decade or so, it has a potential for being commoditized in some ways. So maintaining that relationship and making sure that we really provide value to our hospital partners is key. Recruiting is probably the latest thing that keeps me up at night. Um, just like a lot of practices, we, we're growing and have need for more radiologists. So trying to get the right people on the team is number two. And then uh, number three is just you know trying to keep our eye on the future. Um, I think that it's really easy to just keep um, swimming at the same pace and rate and stroke that you've been doing for the past 10 years. But radiology especially is in this constant turn of innovation. And so if we're not looking ahead and trying to see what things are going to look like in the future, then we're going to be left behind. So figure out how to think outside of the box and be creative with our business strategy and leadership. So many of those are good fodder to jump into. Let's start with the future, because in some ways the future is here. And then in some ways the future is coming. And I think one of the biggest challenges I see when I talk to leaders like you is like, when do we jump into these things? We all kind of think we know where the field is going, but it's also kind of not there yet. And we're just trying to yeah. keep up with like the daily list of spine MRIs to read. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, how do you balance the future planning? Yeah. That, that's a great question. And you make a good point that, you know, so much of our day is just getting the daily work done that, you know, you can't completely abandon that to just sit there and pontificate about what you think 2025 is going to look like. So I kind of have an internal rule that 5% or so of what our practice does should be related to innovation, just something completely outside of the box. And we just are going to do our best to keep the 95% as the you know, status quo, and then at least that 5%. And that, that can look like beta testing a new startup or coming up with some new internal ideas or just completely revamping workflow things kind of you know, on the side as pilot programs outside of the box schedule changes or things like that. We do as a practice, we do uh, participate in some innovative processes with some other partners. I don't want to initiate vendor names, but we uh, try to stay on the cutting edge, both to have radiologist involvement in those companies uh, and to make sure that we're well positioned for the future. Um, so it's it's a balance. The other example that you know, my wheelhouse in the reimbursement world is the future eventually is going to be some type of value-based care, but we can't just you know switch all our contracts to risk-based contracts right now and give up fee-for-service or we're going to you know, go bankrupt. So at what point do you kind of get your toes wet in quality type payments and risk-based payments, 
how do you balance that with making sure that you can still pay the bills with the fee preserves environment we find ourselves in? Um, so that's something that our practice is considered. We participate in MIPS. We try to maximize our, our quality in as many ways as possible. We've discussed some risk-based payments and we have a couple of those through our hospital, but uh, just you know, making sure that we're prepared for when that comes and uh, not just taking the leap into it blindly, but you know, when they do flip that switch that we're not gonna be unprepared. So for our audience's benefit, and not at all for mine, because I know exactly what you're talking about. And for those who can't see me, I'm, I'm being facetious. But what does it mean to have a risk-based payment? Talk that through with yeah. me a little bit. Yeah, sorry. So healthcare predominantly has been paid for fee-for-service, right? If I, I do a surgery, you pay me for a surgery. I read an x-ray, you pay me for an x-ray. I read 20 x-rays, you pay me for 20 x-rays. That has its problems. There's some perverse incentives there. There's obviously a, a, a desire and a need you know, to make money. So you might do more things than you actually need to do. Uh, so there's been a real shift in the U.S. healthcare system to try to move towards value-based care. One way to do that is a risk-based payment. So I'm going to give you a lump sum of money to take care of this group of people. You spend it however you want, but if you spend more than that, that's on you. If you spend less than that, then, hey, you get to keep the rest. So um, that's what's what we consider risk-based payment. Uh, we've seen it mostly in the primary care world and uh, shared savings programs and accountable care organizations that Medicare's run. Um, there hasn't been a, a ton of involvement of radiologists in those type programs, which is back to my point of we don't really necessarily want to volunteer ourselves up for that because it sounds scary and potentially not advantageous to us. But the system in general is going in that direction. I mean, we have to do something to control costs in, in medicine. So eventually it will trickle down to us. So if we're not thinking about how to maximize our value, be mindful of utilization, make sure that we're making evidence-based recommendations in our report. The follow-up is you know, based on science and not just asking for an MRI on every renal lesion that comes your way, things like that, then we're not going to be able to participate at all. And uh, I don't quite know what value-based care is going to end up looking like for radiology, but it's probably not going to stay strictly fee-for-service. So there's lots of things our practices can do to prepare for that. Have you taken any steps here? Because I've heard a lot about this but for a long time, and it's not clear to me where's from A to Z, like what are some of the steps in between? Is it in certain subspecialty areas? Is it in certain clinical settings? Or is it on certain, like just knee surgeries? Like how do you start building up some pilots and some proof points there? Some of that is uh, passed down on us if we don't actually have a choice. Um, sometimes the hospitals will accept, uh, for example, bundle payments. Like you say, they may accept a payer may say, we're going to give the hospital a set amount of money for a knee replacement or for a bone marrow transplant. And then the hospital has to decide how to pair that money up amongst the people that provided the care. Um, what we've seen for the most part is that they will still pay us. The hospital will still pay us fee for service for the knee x-ray that we might read as part of that bundle. But more and more, they're trying to ratchet down those payments because, of course, that directly impacts their ultimate profit of the hospital. There have not been many direct negotiations between radiologists and payers um, in terms of risk-based contracts, although we've talked about some. You know, what could a, a payer incentivize the use of evidence-based recommendations or appropriate follow-up you know, for different indications to make sure that the right study is being ordered for the right patient, that you're not, you know, unnecessarily recommending follow-up that's not not needed. Could you tie that to some kind of payment? Um, you could, but I think in the scheme of things, when you're looking at healthcare uh, across the whole house of medicine, that's probably low on the, the totem pole for some of these payers. So I don't think they're going to be jumping to that anytime soon. One area we've looked at, uh, is there a potential for some type of payment model like that is breast imaging. Um, you can think of breast imaging as probably the most episode-based thing that radiologist does. Um, we see the patient for screening mammogram. We may do some workup, biopsy, all the way to the diagnosis of breast cancer or released back into screening. 
So uh, there may be a way to do some sort of bundled payment for that. We just don't know yet. And again, we haven't seen a lot of that, but knowing what that is and how to think about it uh, is really important. Um, and knowing how to collect data and measure your practice so that often the government, <laughs> they don't like to pontificate about things. Sometimes they'll just decide where this is the way we're going to do it, <laughs> period. Um, you don't have a lot of time to prepare or you know, argue against it. And so uh, knowing how to do those things, I think is, even if you're not actively doing them, being aware and planning for the future, it's really important. You brought up imaging utilization is another important vector here. I was having a conversation with a radiologist over the weekend. It may or may not have been my wife. And she you know, is talking about a patient, or I guess in this case, it was an ER doctor that ordered a CTA, completely unindicated, tried to tell them, no, you shouldn't do that. And eventually, it was just told, hey, just let them do it. So what role does radiology play? And how can radiology earn a bigger seat at the table on this point in particular? Obviously, there's been things like image wisely. Right. I don't know how broadly impactful those have been. But what have you seen here? I have mixed feelings about this. I'll share one unpopular opinion at the end, but um, the utilization definitely has grown, especially in the ER. I think that's multifactorial. One is that the ERs are really busy and understaffed. And so you don't have an hour to sit down with the patient, do a really thorough physical exam, talk to them, get a great history before you decide what kind of imaging to do. Now they're have turnaround time pressures and discharge pressures like everybody else does. So often the easiest and least path of resistance is to just image them head to toe, get as much information as you can, and then you can make a decision on whether to admit or send home. And so I don't know that that's bad other than cost and radiation. I think that if imaging was free um, and that you know, didn't have a radiation aspect to it, everybody would you know, walk through the ED and just get everything done from the beginning. There'd be no decision-making factors. Unfortunately, those two things aren't true. There is an expense to it and there's radiation with CT and X-ray. So we have to figure out some way to do it more responsibly. I think that uh, there's also a push in hospitals towards patient satisfaction and patients value imaging. I don't think it's, there's, there's no doubt that a patient goes to the ER, they expect to be imaged in most cases. And so if you have an ER doctor who's being measured and in some cases his or her bonus is tied towards patient satisfaction scores, sitting down and arguing with the patient on why you don't think they need a head CT for their headache is yeah, it's just, it takes time and it potentially is you know, bad for your paycheck. So they're, I just think that the incentives are uh, off a little bit in those ways. My, my devil's advocate opinion here is that if patients value it, the referring physicians obviously value it because they order a lot of it. Is it necessarily a bad thing? I mean, we, we talk about overutilization, but who's the arbiter of the overutilization? Who's to say where the right line is? I know in the, in the breast imaging world, we have pretty good scientific evidence that breast ultrasound is, is not terribly helpful for pain, but it is standard practice in most places. If a woman comes in with breast pain, we'll do an ultrasound as an anxiety relieving measure because mm. it's reassuring to them. And uh, it, there's a kind of a non-medical benefit to doing that. Not, not in all cases. Sometimes obviously it's medically indicated, but so, you know, I, I just think we have to be a little bit careful on how we define that those terms. So that's my controversial opinion of the day. To answer your question, how can radiologists be involved in utilization? You're right. At least in my practice, we don't give a lot of pushback. It may be something that we don't think is indicated. We just don't have the time and often it's not fruitful. You just pretty much do the scan. You order a hamburger, you get a hamburger. If it's something that's dangerous to the patient, obviously we'll, we'll, that's not the case, but often we'll do the study. We've looked at some programs through the ACR um, and like an audit and feedback type 
version of clinical decision support so that we could track how appropriate uh, imaging is. And then let's say quarterly or something, we would sit down with the clinicians and say, you know, X percent of your studies were, were not appropriate. Here's some education on what might've been a better test or what indication may or may not have been ideal for that. I think there is some role for that kind of education, but we're just not fixing those initial problems of ER overcrowding, not enough time to see and evaluate the patient, and then the patient's demands. Yeah. So a really long-winded uh, answer. <laughs> no, it's not. And I'm just trying to dive in, figure out where to dive in first, because uh, there's so many places to go. I think my first point that I might add to the ER comment is so many more mid-levels to right. who don't right. know how and, to and do studies have shown exam. that the mid-level um, imaging um, and labs and test ordering, all tests are used more by mid-levels. But, but you're the first person I've ever spoken to that brought up patient demand. And look, patients want imaging. And one of these... Yeah, I get asked all the time because my background is not in healthcare. My background's in tech. I worked at Google very early on. Everyone's like, isn't this the one where AI is coming and just going to automate it away and what's going on? And and I always tell people, I'm like, you know, there's kind of no shortage of things people want to know about what's going on inside their body. I'm like, as soon as we figure out how to automate x-rays, we're just going to get more MRs or we're going to invent some new modality, you know, and yeah. we're going to be able to see things at the cellular or molecular. I don't know. Right. And so there's just kind of no shortage of it. And I think the patient demand is really a key piece here. And we always talk about uh, healthcare is a seventh of our economy. Is that bad? Isn't that bad? And I go, well, is it? I don't know. People like might just want to be healthy. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, that, that's like something they care about. So anyway, uh, not a question there, just a reaction and, and violent agreement to some of the answers you gave there. So you are part of StratRad, Strategic Radiology, an alliance of private practices nationwide, I think 30 plus groups. How did that come about? Yes. So we, uh, TRA has been around for 50 plus years. We've always been an independent private practice led by physicians. And uh, when um, strategic radiology was convened and uh, started adding groups as affiliate groups, we really agreed with the concept and their mission uh, to stand up for independent private practices. I'm not going to bash on any type of practice models. There's all room for everybody at the table. But for us, uh, particularly in our setting, it's really important to remain, have that control over our group, have the uh, ability to you know, be our own leaders, make our own decisions, build our own relationships with our hospital contracts and our uh, potential other partners. So for us, it made sense to join the ranks and um, kind of take a stand for the independent private practice. Awesome. So you mentioned one of the other things, keeping up at night, keeping all CEOs in radiology up at night is recruiting. How are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you handling it? You know, what's working? What's maybe, maybe you don't even want to share what's working because uh, <laughs> give away my secret. Some of your competitors are listening, but, but yeah. like really, I mean, it's, it's just got to be a bit heady, right? Yeah. You joined the job market a decade ago. You couldn't find a job. You can't get someone to work yeah. for you. So what's going on? Yeah, I mean it's 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 tough. Um, it's stressful. Um, I will say that our secret sauce, and I, this I have no problem sharing this with the competitors, um, is our our team. And I think it comes down to working with people that you enjoy being around. And I'm so lucky to have a group of people who are just amazing at being team players. They have each other's back. As somebody gets sick or has to go pick up a kid, there's 200 people there volunteering to go help them out. Uh, your list is long. They'll jump on. I think that kind of uh, teamwork is hard to replicate. So people are looking for all sorts of different things in jobs, but if they can just look for a culture in a place where they're going to actually enjoy working, they're going to be happier long-term. 
I personally think our practice offers that. Um, we've tried to be really good about work-life balance. It's not always easy. We have some creative ways to let people kind of dial up on their kind of money versus time scale on where they want to be. So it's not exactly a cookie cutter for, for everybody, acknowledging that people have different priorities at different stages in their lives. But at the end of the day, I think that we have just been lucky enough to create an environment where um, people like coming to work. So if I could just get the new recruits to just come and yeah, hang out with us, go to dinner with us, or just watch people working, um, that's been our, our big selling point, I think. Um, and we've been, you know, been pretty successful. Some, some things you can't, you know, people want to live in certain places or they want to work a certain schedule that we can't accommodate. Th those are tough, but um, in general, we've had some pretty good luck. with. We've also been lucky enough to be growing. So you know, we're not just trying to replace the people that are leaving. We're actually trying to add to the ranks. So that's been a, a good problem to have. But we've done pretty well. Are all of your jobs in person? That's not, that's was I was going to uh, mention that as well. So no, we um, right before COVID, we have a, a overnight team um, that we were letting we were having them kind of alternate shifts between home and on site. When COVID hit, that we obviously tried to get as many people out of the hospital as possible. Um, so we set up more remote ability to work remotely. It actually works surprisingly well. Um, We're again, blessed to have an amazing IT team that can support that. Um, I think it's, it's probably harder for some practices, but we are guys really had it under control, making a reliable uh, system that wouldn't falter, that were on call to help troubleshoot, fast connections, all that kind of thing. So it worked well. Um, in fact, it worked so well that the hospital's like, oh, I didn't even really notice you guys weren't on site. So um, <laughs> We were able to make some of those changes permanent as far as um, after hours coverage, not being on site. And then because it worked well, we realized that we could expand our manpower without having people on site. It's just really hard to find a radiologist who wants to come you know, sit in a center and monitor contrast all day or do fluoro. Um, those are hard jobs to find. Um, it's not so hard to find people who um, are great quality radiologists who uh, want to read remotely and, and can, can do a great job. So we've made some kind of manpower shifts and adjustments to accommodate that. We've had some great remote hires that are really great radiologists. The challenge there becomes making sure they feel part of that team, um, that they can feel that collegiality and culture benefit that I think our group provides. Um, but we've made some you know, adjustments to try to make sure that they they feel like they're as much so does, as part of TRA as anyone else. Does that mean that you'll actually hire people outside of North Carolina now yeah. into yeah. full, no, into we, full we remote? Have, yeah, we have uh, several radiologists that are outside of North Carolina. Do you think you could have become CEO of TRA if you had started in a remote teleradiology job at TRA? Ah, uh, that's a loaded question. Um, so um, I don't think if I had only ever been remote, I think that would have been hard. A lot of the job that I have is relationships. Uh, not that those relationships can't be done remotely, but they're harder. And especially if you didn't start by having those in-person, seeing people eye to eye relationships, I think that might've been more difficult to build. My phone rings off the hook every day from, from partners, from our that referring physicians from hospital people that I've actually seen and sat down with and had meetings with. So I think that's a benefit to it. I don't think it's impossible. Part of what I think the future is, is, is being willing to think outside the box and shift our, our vision of how things should be or have to be. And uh, our practice right now does not have any partner fully remote radiologists, but I think there's some that do. Um, we're not necessarily against that. It's just you know, something that we're in the transition of trying to figure out. So never say never. Yeah, I think it's smart. You're being very forward thinking and open-minded about it. It was a, a bit of a different way of asking the question I was about to ask, which was what advice do you have for radiologists building their career? And, you know, one of the things you know, people hear is, hey, you know, don't don't start in teleradiology. Don't start in teleradiology. I imagine that's becoming less and less 
true. But at the same time, you know, think about your job and at the jump, you talked about what you're spending your time with is a CEO and it's hospital relationships. So, yeah. okay, how do you build hospital relationships? You got to be in the hospital and get to know yeah. all the leaders and the various functions and how do you do that remotely? I don't know. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I'm not sure I would necessarily give someone the advice not to start in teleradiology just because everybody has different needs at different points in their lives. And for some people that works really well for them, it's different for every person. I think if I only worked remote ever, I would really miss that interpersonal interaction. I think there's people who wouldn't. They'd have a ton of job satisfaction and caring for patients and you know, the convenience of being in their home. And that's totally fine for them. Whether or not that you know, advances to a leadership position in a practice, I, I don't know. I think that that remains to be seen. It, it could. Um, there's certainly companies all around the country and the world that have leaders that haven't seen each other and that are run completely remotely. There's businesses that don't even have a headquarters in a home office. So I'm not going to say it can't happen. I just think we're currently watching that in evolution. Any other advice you'd give to early career radiologists? Yeah. Uh, we always tell people, at least in, in the health policy world, when we have people that are interested in volunteering for the economics commission or things like that, when they're just out of training or in, in as a resident. So your first job is to be the best radiologist you can. Um, it's great that you have these interests in these other things, but yeah, that's your, that's your career. Um, take care of patients first, make sure you just are, are the best you can be at radiology. Then after that, I think communication skills are key, no matter what you're going to do. Obviously, as radiologists, we communicate through our reports, so that's important. But being able to speak publicly, being able to you know, communicate, run meetings, all those things are really important skills that I'm surprised how many you know, adults and, and leaders sometimes don't have. Last advice would be just to keep learning. Um, life gets boring if you <laughs> if you stop learning. There's always something new to learn, whether it's you know, some new part of radiology or leadership training or tennis. I mean, there's lots of, lots of things that you can learn in life, but uh, as long as you keep challenging yourself to do new things and be a good teammate, you're going to be all right. Well, uh, as the CEO of a learning company, I, I didn't pay you to say that, but I will certainly agree <laughs> with the, the I'll sentiment. take a t-shirt. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Nicole, I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, it, you've had a very interesting and exciting career path. I'm so excited to see what you go to do next and how TRA continues to grow and evolve. Thank you so much for joining Thanks. the podcast. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.